Jesus, Jesus. How I trust you. When the world seems so difficult, you're there. You offer us grace. You give us hope. And you are our Prince of Peace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. But doesn't it seem like we're getting into more fights, more arguments, more disagreements than ever before? Maybe it's me. Read about bullying in school, fights breaking out over mask, anti-mask, vaccine, anti-vaccine. Every single election cycle just seems to get nastier and nastier. Why is it so hard to just get along with each other? Maybe it's just me. That's what James is going to have us explore today. As we continue this journey through the New Testament book of James. See, James gives us real life from the trenches wisdom about how to live life wisely. So today we're going to Start chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, don't worry. The scriptures will be on the screen. James chapter 4, verse 1 starts out this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires to battle with you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. See, James starts off with two interesting points. The first is, he doesn't bring up how to solve conflict. He brings up what causes it. Which is interesting because we tend to think that we already know what causes conflict. Somebody said something. Somebody did something that made us mad. That's what causes conflict. That's exactly the point. Because James tells us that is not the cause of our conflict. Which gives us the second interesting thing he says. He says that we get into fights because of what's inside of us. 
James says, we are at war inwardly. So it's only natural for that war to be expressed outwardly as well. That inner conflict within each and every one of us results in outer conflict. And that's, that's huge. Because we think that we are always the victim in these types of things. And that because we're the victim, that we are justified in however we act. That's where James wants to challenge us. He says that we get in most of our conflicts, most of our fights, because of us. Because of our own junk deep inside of us. So what is that junk? See, James is, says it's about what we desire, what we want but we don't have, what we covet, what we would be even willing to kill for. And if you were here last week, you know what he's describing, describing envy. Now, if you, if you weren't here last week, here's just a quick review. James hit hard on this last week. Throughout the Bible, envy is one of the, flagged as one of the most dangerous sins there is. Even throughout history, it's labeled as one of those seven deadly sins. But it's more. It's more than simply looking at somebody and wishing you had just a little bit of what they had. The truth is that envy is relational poison. And if left unchecked, it goes on a relational warpath. See, it begins with just a simple desire. We see something that somebody has or something that somebody can do or something that somebody has achieved, and we wish we had it or could do it or had achieved it. That's why someone who makes $50,000 a year envies the person who makes $150,000 a year. It's why that C student envies the A student. But that's just where it begins. If unchecked, that desire turns into dislike. You don't just want what they have. You resent them for having it. This isn't just about desiring something. It involves hostility toward them for having what you want. Then you start hoping that they'll lose it and doing whatever you can to help that process along a little bit. So you tear them down. You attack them. You undermine them. To quote the Beastie Boys, you sabotage them. If left unchecked in our lives, envy will take that dislike that it's created and lead you to try to destroy whatever it is that you were desiring in that other person's life. So it is envy that often puts us into relational conflict with other people. Which then raises the question, why do we envy? If we get into fights and quarrels because of, 
because of what's inside of us and what's going on inside of us is envy and envy is so destructive. If it leads to fights and quarrels, then why are we envying? That's where James goes next. Beginning in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you are asking with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? This is what the Scripture says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a lot right there. But so why is it that we envy? Because there are things that we want that we don't have. Why don't we have them? Is it just because other people have more talent than us? More money, more contacts, more luck, more breaks, more looks, more personality, more ability, more fill in whatever blank you want to. That's what we think. James says that thinking is wrong. It's not because they have more. It's about us. We don't have what we long for because we haven't asked God for it. And if we do ask God, we're not asking for the right things or with the right motives. In other words, we're getting things screwed up about as much as humanly possible. Here's what James is after. Our fulfillment comes from God, living for Him, relating to Him, enjoying Him, following Him. We were made for Him. If we look to anything else to satisfy us, to fill us, we will always always come up empty. Only God can fill us. That's what James means when he says we're trying to be a friend of the world instead of being a friend of God. We're trying to draw from the world instead of trying to draw from God. We're wanting to be in a relationship with the world instead of being in a relationship with God. We're trading what really matters. What really has meaning for something cheap, fleeting, and superficial. We're not willing to invest in what really matters, but we'll pour our lives into things that don't. 
getting what the world has to offer us has become everything to us. Because in our heart and in our mind, this life is all that we really care about. Nothing else. We will remain captivated by the here and the now, by how much we have, by how far we can advance, by how much we can achieve, how much we can enjoy. We will let the material world outweigh the spiritual world. That's what James wants us to see is behind so much of that conflict, both internal and external conflict. So the ultimate breakdown, what will leave you feeling more dissatisfied than anything, is to either look to something else other than God or to go to God only for cheap, worldly, non-spiritual things that aren't even God things. Either way, we're missing out. And then James adds that one last thing. Did you, did you catch it in James chapter 4, verse 6? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, we can get even more out of whack than we already are by throwing pride into the mix. Because what pride adds to envy is the idea that we don't even need God when we're trying to find something else to fill our emptiness inside of us. We won't even think that God has anything to offer us that we can't get for ourselves. We'll think we're self-sufficient, able to meet our own needs. We won't think that we're out of whack when in fact we are. We won't think that we're needy when in fact we are. We won't think that we need God when in fact that is all that we need. So right about now you might be wondering, what can we do about this? Sounds like kind of a bummer of a sermon so far. And that's where James is going to take us next, beginning in verse 7, this time in the message paraphrase. He says, So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. There's a lot packed in to those four verses. 
but there's a single headline. Get back on track spiritually. Get connected to God. Turn your back on what isn't of Him. Whatever dishonors Him, turn your back on that. Or whatever keeps you from putting Him in your life, turn your back and run to a life with Him. Run to a life that draws from Him, that honors Him. Some of you may not be there yet. Some online may be watching or here. Maybe you haven't made a decision to be a Christ follower. Maybe you're still just checking things out. But a lot of you have made up that decision. You have come to Christ, but the problem is you haven't come fully. And that's the problem. You're coming to God for some things, but you're still chasing after the world for others. It's like you have one foot in, but one foot out. Part of your life in, but part of your life out. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called lukewarm. Not hot, not cold. Lukewarm. See, nobody thinks they're lukewarm. So maybe a picture of what it really means might help. In his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan gives a profile of what it means to be lukewarm. Here's a part of his thumbnail sketch, and if you truly listen to it, it will hit you. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they don't do anything. They assume such actions are for those extreme Christians, not, not the average Christian. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expects of all of his followers. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors or their co-workers or their friends. They don't want to be rejected. They don't want to make people feel uncomfortable by talking about private things like religion. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as good or hardcore as so-and-so, 
They're nowhere near as horrible as a guy down the street. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their life. But he's only a part. They give him a section of their time, a portion of their money, a portion of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control all of it. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than they would think about eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life to come. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling guilty. They do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much from them. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. This focus on living keeps them from sacrificing or risking anything for God. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. They don't have to trust that if something unexpected happens, what will they do? That's what their savings account is for. The truth is, Lukewarm people, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. That sound familiar to anyone? If you want some brutal honesty this morning from up here, as I look at this church, Pride Adventist Fellowship, I see a lukewarm church that hurts. Sure, there are some that are on fire, but for the most part, we are lukewarm. We're not on fire for God. I wish I had an answer. I wish I could give you a three-step process to reignite this church. I don't. Because if I'm honest, I'm probably among that lukewarm group. We're all lukewarm in some areas of our life. We're all messed up. We're all a work in progress. But James is wanting us to care that we're lukewarm. It's one thing to admit that you are, but if, if you just don't care that you are, it's another problem entirely. But even more, he wants to warn us that if we've given our whole life over to being lukewarm, then God is useless to us, and we are useless to 
to him. How would you like to hear that from Jesus? That, we're, that we are useless to him. Not exactly a word of encouragement. But that is how worthless being lukewarm is. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the book of Revelation. The seventh of the seven letters to the seven churches. The church known as Laodicea. A church that was known for four things. First, it was wealthy. So wealthy that when an earthquake hit, it refused all government aid because they had more than enough wealth to rebuild their own city. The second thing they were known for was for producing the finest clothes in all the world. The third thing they were known for their medical school and the invention of an ointment that would help clear up vision. The final thing they were known for is that they did not have their own water supply. It had to come to them through a series of viaducts and pipes over a distance of about six miles. And it came from a series of hot springs. So by the time it made its way to Laodicea, it was lukewarm which lukewarm water is absolutely disgusting to drink. In fact, it's so disgusting that it, it would make them wretch to try and drink it. If it had come out hot, that could at least be useful for bathing or cleaning, but, but lukewarm water was good for absolutely nothing. Now hear what Jesus says to them. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The imagery here is precise. He says you're neither hot nor cold. Neither on fire nor dead. Neither a passionate, world-changing believer nor a devout atheist. You're just somewhere in the middle. Safe, warm, comfortable. Now Jesus isn't commending people for being cold. He's just saying that at least with a cold person, 
you at least know where you stand relationally. But this lukewarm, in the middle stuff, made Jesus want to vomit. And the people who heard this message in Laodicea knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was a phrase used among themselves about their water supply. When it would get so bad that they would retch, Jesus is saying, that's how you make me feel when I look at you. Being lukewarm is not something Jesus can endure can't stomach it. It makes him gag. It makes him wretch. They thought they had all that they needed. Wealth, health, and clothing. But Jesus says, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. And the worst is you don't even know it. Because all you're seeing is your worldly wealth your worldly clothing, your worldly vision, you've fallen into the trap of making spiritual things just an add-on. Just enough God in your life so that you can sleep at night, that you can check off that you went to church this week. But you have nothing the wealth that you think you have, the clothes that you think you have, the eyes that you think you can see with. It's not there. None of it is there. Notice how Jesus ends this section in verse 20. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The goal isn't to beat us down. The goal is to wake us up, to have us come back home to Jesus. So how does James end this section? goes back to where it begins, the fights and the quarrels, to how we should care for our inner world in ways that allow us to interact with others correctly. So he ends these last two verses, James 4, 11, and 12. He says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? To judge someone is to make assumptions about their character. 
to assume something that you don't really know. When you judge someone, you suspect the worst. And then you act upon that suspicion. Speak evil about them. You put them down rather than building them up. You undermine them. James is saying, ease up. Quit being so hard on people. Who are you to judge anyone? Instead, worry about yourself. There's only one judge, and I'm not him, and you are not him. So quit acting like it. Go back to where James started. What causes fights and quarrels among us? We do. But he told us much more than that, didn't he? He told us to wake up, to stop being lukewarm, to see all of the conflict, all of the stress, all of the tension in our life, all of that anger. It's coming from a single source, not having God be God in our life. Not realizing what's important, what's truly important, and what is eternal. Being more of a friend of the world than a friend of Jesus. We need to get back on spiritual track. We need to stop being lukewarm. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to make Jesus gag. Heavenly Father, thank you for the strong words that you gave James to give to us. We need those strong words. We need our toes stepped on. We need to look in the mirror and see that we are lukewarm. That you would rather have us be cold than lukewarm. Help us to see that in our lives, to recognize it in our lives, and to do something about it. To commit everything we have, everything that we are, to following you, to being in a relationship with you. Because that relationship is the only thing that matters in this world. Nothing else will get us to heaven. Only a relationship with you. Your love for us is so amazing. It's reckless. It's never ending. You are standing at the door of our heart, just wanting us to open it, to invite you in. Convict our hearts today, Jesus. Convict our hearts to open that door surrender everything we have to you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.